2: Welcome back to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. So this episode kicks off season two. Can you believe it? We did a whole season, a whole 44 episodes. So if you're a new friend of the podcast, make sure to go back and check out season one. We have amazing topics and awesome guests that you definitely don't want to miss. So go ahead, catch up, listen, and make sure to comment and rate. So today and over the next couple of episodes, we'll discuss topics related to getting pregnant. Eating a low-sodium diet and walking about 30 minutes a day, five days a week or 150 minutes a week can help you get your blood pressure under control and your cholesterol lowered and your diabetes under control, okay? All that takes, low-sodium diet, 30 minutes of walking, five days a week, okay? Now, if you're like, oh my God, I don't have time for that, then you probably don't have time for a baby, okay? So let's let's put our priorities uh, in check, okay? So let's get ourselves in our mindset right to have this baby. And that may be sacrificing some things. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the facts about timing. For women who are under age 35 years old, pregnancy can take up to a year before your OBGYN will refer you to an infertility specialist or who's called a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, or give you medicines themselves for ovulation induction or to increase the likelihood that you are going to release an egg um, every single month. For women over 35, OBGYNs will try to let you uh, achieve pregnancy naturally for half that amount of time. So six months before they give you medicines for ovulation induction, or refer you to a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, or what's called an REI. So they wait less time because we know that the amount of eggs that you have decreases as you age. You are born with all the eggs that you're going to have in your life, okay? And so you can't make more eggs. So once you reach a certain age, since we know that the the age of the egg is actually increasing which means the quality of the egg is decreasing and the sheer number of eggs you have are less we're going to wait less time to refer you or treat you sometimes there are special situations that defy these time limits which means that we should refer you to specialists sooner rather than wait the six months if you're over age 35 or the year if you're under age 35 and so some of the main reasons we would refer you early is if you have fibroids you might be referred to a minimally invasive surgeon or a reproductive endocrinologist early to remove or address the fibroids first. Most OBGYNs will also refer you prior to a year if you're less than 35 years old, because we know that there's an issue that can can cause you to have decreased fertility and that's the fibroids. And so before we let you wait a whole year with fibroids, we should probably address whether or not we should remove these fibroids first. If you're over 35 years old and you have multiple fibroids, most OBGYNs um, can remove them themselves or will refer you immediately without waiting that six months, like I said before, for people that are under age 35. If you have a history of miscarriages, if you've been pregnant in the past, then we know you don't have an issue getting pregnant Moms, it means you have an issue staying pregnant. so that's the challenge for you. Therefore, you'll be referred early. Most, uh, most of you even get a preconception consult with an REI or reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, or someone like me and maternal fetal medicine specialist right after the miscarriage, if you've had more than one. And the reason they refer you if you've had more than one, and honestly, I get a referrals even after one, It's because we wanna make sure we know why you've had a miscarriage, okay? So if you have a family history of miscarriages, it could mean that you have a clotting disorder that we don't know about that causes microvascular clotting, which can predispose you to have miscarriages. If you have something like fibroids and the fibroid is blocking the cavity, that could be the reason that you have a miscarriage. If you have a medical condition like diabetes that's not really well controlled, that in itself could cause you to have a miscarriage. If you got COVID, that could cause you to have miscarriage. So there are reasons that people have miscarriages. So if you've had more than one miscarriage, you should have a preconception consult before. And that would be a reason that you might need to have a a further treatment, um, something to help you ovulate or something to help you stay pregnant let's go to some cases to figure out if our listeners are dealing with
3: normal or abnormal issues. Our first case is a 26 year old who is 31 weeks pregnant with her second child. She was referred for evaluation of memory loss, which her OBGYN is concerned might be due to her past history of preeclampsia, which might have caused posterior reversible encephalopathy in her last pregnancy about two years ago. She does not have a history of chronic hypertension, and so far, her blood pressure has been normal. She takes no medications besides prenatal vitamins and baby aspirin. Her memory loss became noticeable about five weeks ago. Her husband reports that she would often fumble through her purse to put her keys in the ignition, not realizing that her car has a push-button start. Last week, she even forgot that she was pregnant until she felt the baby move. She presents to see if brain imaging is recommended.
2: We have a couple things going on. One, the patient has a history of preeclampsia, and so. If you don't know exactly what preeclampsia is, season one, we have a whole episode just on preeclampsia and I also have a YouTube episode on preeclampsia as well. Um, But it is when you have high blood pressure in pregnancy as well as vascular damage. We look for that vascular damage as protein in your urine. Sometimes when people have severe preeclampsia, so they have really severe blood pressures, um, they can also have symptoms of preeclampsia, which include a headache, blurry vision, and then pain, over your liver, which is on, if you look, if you're on your pressing on your belly, it's on the top right-hand side of your belly is where your liver is, in most people, um, is where your liver is. So uh, some people can have posterior reversal encephalopathy, which is also abbreviated as PRESS, okay? So sort of abbreviation for the president, PRESS. And um, that is just an increased signal in the back of the brain, like near the cerebellum, that we see in people that have preeclampsia and HELP syndrome, and we know that this goes away. So usually after pregnancy, it goes away. It usually takes a couple of weeks to go away based on past studies, but it goes away. I don't anticipate that posterior reversal encephalopathy would still be present two years later because it's caused by preeclampsia, which goes away after delivery of the baby, okay? The cure for preeclampsia is delivery of the placenta, even though you have those hormones still lingering around. Those hormones linger around for about six weeks. So I don't expect this to all be from press. Um, the thing that also makes me think is not because of her previous pregnancy is because she was fine until like five weeks ago when they started noticing the symptoms. So I don't think that this is because of the last pregnancy. I think that if her blood pressure is normal, she doesn't have any medical problems right now, everything is going smoothly right now, then this is probably normal in pregnancy. This is what I would consider pregnancy brain. At this point, I would not recommend any further imaging, especially if she's just like fumbling and trying to find keys to put it in the ignition. I do that now, y'all. I do, I do that sometimes now. I forget that, oh, I have a different car now. And I've had my car for a couple of months and I have to realize like there's no insertion to turn to get into my car, so I have to remember that that's something that can happen. I, I've heard of people, you know, losing their keys. I've heard of people um, thinking, you know, putting stuff down, walking away and not remembering what they put down. I've heard of people uh, leaving their purses places. I've heard of people losing their cell phones constantly. I even heard of people like leaving their kids in the car, which is why it can be dangerous. Um, and why we also tell people if you have small kids, set an alert on your phone so that you remember that you're who drops the kids off when but this is not something abnormal like she's not having any other neurologic symptoms besides like what appears to be some mild memory losses and i know what y'all are thinking how does she forget that she was pregnant y'all it happens right like i remember being pregnant and like it being surreal like that i was actually pregnant every day i would be like dang i'm pregnant like waking up and be like i'm pregnant or i'd roll over and tell my husband wait a minute we're pregnant. We gonna have a baby. And it's like, we were reliving this all over again. And some days he would say, you realize you said this to me multiple times. I'm like, I'm in disbelief. And sometimes you do want to put your old clothes on and realize, Oh, these don't fit. They're not going to fit because I got a bump here. I mean, this is, This is real. I mean, people have this all the time and that's why there are these jokes like pregnancy brain and brain fog and you know all these things that we joke about memory loss and people blaming it on the progesterone. Well, there is, like I said before, there's data that proves that the amount of hormones that are circulating through your body does cause a decrease in the gray matter. So this is a real thing. So I don't think that this patient needs any further workup. Now, if she starts doing things that are like severe, like, oh, She's lost her memory and then can't recall anything like, oh, you put your cell phone down, you lost your cell phone. And then you did not recall, like you're arguing with your spouse saying you never put your cell phone down or you don't realize that, hey, this is, you know, if you get in the car, you're looking and fumbling for your keys and then you're like, I don't know how I got here. And you can't be convinced you're in your car. Like that would be severe for me. But this whole like fumbling through and then you can't remember recall that you have push button start. Like I hear this all the time. So I think that you're fine. I wouldn't do any further evaluation. Now, if you had other medical problems, I would. Or if it became severe, I would. But not with mild problems. So in this situation, the case pearl for this case is Pregnancy brain is completely normal. A short delay in memory is to be expected. Vecchione, um, Miss Natalie Vecchione. <laughs> Natalie Vecchione is a FASD parent advocate, podcaster, author. And most importantly, a wife and homeschool mom of two. Natalie and her husband, John, built their family through domestic adoption. Their son, who is 19, lives with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. He has graduated from homeschool and an aspiring young woodworker. Their daughter is six and she started her homeschool journey last year. Natalie and John have a much different adoption journey with their daughter as they are very close with their daughter's birth mom. Natalie turned her family's unique challenges and journeys in FASD, from career reinventing into a calling, when she and her husband began FASD Hope in October of 2020. Natalie has been an FASD podcaster for over a year. The FASD Hope Podcast series is through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope Podcast is available in anywhere you can find podcasts. Natalie, welcome to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. Thank you Dr. Nicole. It is an honor to be here. You don't have to call me Dr. Nicole. (laughs) Thank you, Nicole. I know that before the show we were talking about the diagnoses that fall under FASD and I was like, oh there's four and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, there are five. So Natalie, tell our listeners, what are the disorders that actually fall under the umbrella of FASD? So first of all, FASD itself is
4: not the actual diagnosis. FASD is a spectrum disorder, just like autism, just like other spectrum disorders. So the five diagnoses that fall under the FASD umbrella of diagnoses, first one is what most people are known. The first diagnosis is what most people know about fetal alcohol syndrome. That's what people usually associate when they hear uh, fetal alcohol. Second one is partial fetal alcohol syndrome, and that was the one that I was telling you that, that you had all the others um, in, in the uh, diagnosis, so that was the one that I had told you. Third diagnosis is alcohol-related birth defects, or ARBD. Fourth one is neurobehavioral disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure, or ND-PAE. And the fifth one is alcohol related neurodevelopmental disorder or ARND. So those are the five diagnoses that fall under the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder umbrella of diagnoses.
2: Natalie, you have two kids. Your oldest has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So he he actually has he
4: actually has FAS. He he met the criteria for fetal alcohol syndrome. Yes.
2: Gotcha. So he falls under FAS within that spectrum. Tell us about that journey. So how old was he when you adopted him? And did you know that he could possibly have any of the disorders in the spectrum when you did adopt him?
4: He's 19. We're talking over 19 years ago, which there was a lot less information available as there is now. And we did not know he had FAS when we adopted him. He had medical needs. And he was um, he was two and a half weeks old when we adopted him. And our agency and the hospital told us about his medical needs, which 15 years later, we learned it was all related to him having an FAS diagnosis. So he was two when he was evaluated for a sleep study. And anyone with a toddler knows that a sleep study with a toddler is just it's, it's an oxymoron because nobody gets any sleep and you really don't <laughs> learn a whole lot. So right. uh, at that sleep study, we also noticed uh, prior to that, he started regressing in attachment. He started regressing in developmental milestones, things like that. He, he wasn't mean, meeting milestones. So we had his sleep study done and the neurologist, the pediatric neurologist who came in two weeks later to give us an update about the study. It was a teaching hospital. He came in with a group of students and interns. And my husband, my son and I were sitting on one side of the room and my son was sitting on my lap facing the group. And the neurologist came in, looked at my son, looked at the chart and said, look at that child. I'm going to, he's been exposed to alcohol. He has fetal alcohol exposure and I'm going to tell you why. And he went down this laundry list. And that was the first time my husband and I had heard of fetal alcohol exposure and, and that our son having it. So we were just flabbergasted. we had no idea what to say. And when he was done speaking to this students in the group, I looked at him and I said, you know, this is the first time we've ever heard this what do we do? And he very nonchalantly said, oh, we'll just put him in earlier intervention and he'll be fine, which we know. And as a parent advocate, you know, (laughs) um, 17 years later from that incident, we know that early intervention is is a great support and will help But FASD is a developmental disability. You do not outgrow developmental disabilities. So from that point when somebody, so he had told us, you know, he had suspected it. Our son in between that point and his actual diagnosis when he was 15, we probably saw at least 20 to 25 different specialists for a variety of things, medical, developmental, and we would always bring up what that neurologist said. And every single specialist dismissed it. They said, no, we don't see it. We don't see it. And then finally, our son, and I have permission to share this, our son, you know, we haven't, he knows what I share and he wants me to share um, certain aspects of our journey because he doesn't want other kids, teens to go through what he had to go through, which was 15 years until he got a diagnosis. Um, Our son was hospitalized for a co-occurring mental health diagnosis, which 93% of people that have an FASD also have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis. He was hospitalized and the psychiatrist in the hospital not only evaluated him, but said he actually meets the criteria for FAS, Ah. not, you know, so which validated you know, what we had been trying to do. And once we received that diagnosis, Nicole, it really opened up the door for us saying, okay, here's how we learn about his brain, here's how we learn about primary characteristics, secondary characteristics, things like that. It really opened the door for us not only to advocate for him so he could have as many supports and interventions as we could find but to also learn so that we could help other parents on this very isolating journey. So it took 15 years for him to actually get that diagnosis.
3: Let's go to some cases. Our first case is a 25-year-old who is 21 weeks pregnant with her first child. She has type 1 diabetes that is well-controlled with an insulin pump. She's been noticing a trend of having lower abdominal cramping and lower blood glucose levels, usually in the 60s or 70s, within the hour of having sexual intercourse. She was sent for management of her hypoglycemic episodes. She also wants to know if sex is causing these issues and if it's safe to continue having intercourse during the rest of her pregnancy.
2: First of all, what I would do is address the, the the most important matter. And the most important matter is you're 25, you're 21 weeks pregnant and you're a type one diabetic. So the first thing I would do is go through your diet. Are you eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner? How many calories are you eating with breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What is your insulin to carb ratio with your breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And if after your meals, are you checking one hour or two hour postprandial checks or are you using your pump to tell you Basically, how are you identifying what your levels are in the postprandial state, okay, or after meal state? So I wanna make sure I'm clear on that. And so just to clarify, let's make sure we understand. And there's a whole episode on diabetes. You can go back and listen to it, but just to hit the high notes, everyone that has type one or type two diabetes should be eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I usually recommend that you eat 45 to 60 grams of carbs with breakfast, lunch and dinner, okay? You should also be eating snacks between breakfast and lunch, lunch and dinner, and a bedtime snack. There are so many people that skip that bedtime snack, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm full. Oh, the baby is not letting me eat. Oh, I don't really feel hungry. Like, no, like you really have to do something um, before you go to bed if you're gonna, you know, sleep for eight hours. And on average, pregnant women sleep more, right? You should be sleeping about 10 to 11 hours a day in your third trimester, okay? So if you're sleeping 10 hours as opposed to the recommended eight hours, then you can see that's a much longer period of fasting, okay? So that is why it's really important in pregnancy that you have the bedtime snack. We're not just saying that. We just don't want you to starve throughout the night. Starvation in pregnancy is actually not a good thing, okay? It ain't good. Because your body will start to break down your glucose stores and then all of a sudden your finger stick is higher fasting in the morning when you wake up and you're like oh my god i really didn't eat anything well we know you're starving and that's why your body basically hit a low at like two or three in the morning and start to break down your own glucose stores and now your blood sugar is like 110 fasting and we're trying to figure out like what happened well what happened was you're not eating enough okay so you really need to eat enough so Start there. So I would address that as making sure that's not the reason that you're having your hypoglycemic episodes, and I also want to make sure that you're not having any hyper or higher blood sugars as well. I also want to make sure I know what we're covering ourselves in, in terms of a sliding scale. So if we, if this is a result of like perhaps you ate lunch and your finger stick was like 150, and you gave yourself a sliding scale then you had sex and then like an hour later, you were in the 60s and 70s. Okay, well that's not the sex, that's actually the extra insulin that you gave yourself. So I'd wanna clarify and make sure that that's not the case. But if everything's been done like it's supposed to be done, you're eating three meals and three sacks a day, you are on a normal insulin res- regimen that covers your insulin to carb ratio and you're counting the number of carbs, so you're giving yourself the correct amount of insulin, okay, then I would say, okay, well, If this only happens during sex, then yeah, it could be the sex that's dropping you a low, okay? And 60s and 70s is not really that bad, okay? Unless you're feeling like dizzy or symptomatic, then I would just let it ride. But if you're like in the middle of the day and you've eaten and your postprandials are dropping that low, to me, that means that you may need to eat a little bit more. Or if you see this trend every time, listen, girl, make that man get up and, and fix you a snack after you you have sex and then check your finger stick an hour later like maybe you are like just working off that much energy that you are you know becoming hypoglycemic because when you're a type 1 diabetic is you you're in a very brittle state okay and so if you're used to eating this amount and you use your finger stick being 110 but then you got hot and heated for an hour and had steamy sex and you know that you're brittle Like if you go and walk around the block and your finger sticks in the seventies, usually, that's a real thing. I have patients that control their finger sticks by just doing more activity. Well, sex is definitely activity, okay? You can get a workout on. And at 21 weeks, you're probably not all that tired just yet. It's not like you're 32 weeks and laying on your side. Like at 21 weeks, you're probably like really, you know, enjoying yourself, okay? To to be PG on this podcast. So if that's the case, listen, the solution hey, go make me some hummus and carrots. Like, let me get a little, you know, post-coital snack is what we call it. Get you a post-coital snack. And that way we won't be hypoglycemic. I'm just saying, like, there's a solution to this. And that solution is not to just not have sex. Like, if you can't have sex, like, you're gonna be walking around frustrated, grumpy. Your spouse is gonna be walking around looking at you crazy. And so we don't wanna cause this rift in your relationship if we don't have to cause a rift. And right now, I don't see any issue except for you have like a little bit of a low. That other thing is like, oh, you feel like cramping afterwards. That's your pelvic floor, okay? The pelvic floor is a big muscle. And you will... You have some cramping and you got to realize that in pregnancy, you have a much higher hormone level than outside of pregnancy. So you might have just more intense contractions of the pelvic floor. That's okay. If you had a, if you had your ultrasound, they said your cervix was normal. They said the baby was normal. Like there's really no reason that you should be concerned about that cramping that happens right after pregnancy. I mean, right after uh, sexual intercourse. That's okay. That's normal. That's your body recovering from the goodness you just had, but Get you a post-coital snack, okay? The case pearl for this case is sex takes energy. It's possible, not typical, but possible, especially for our diabetics, that you can burn a few extra calories, which can drop your blood sugar. So make sure you fly, follow your diet plan and use frequent meals throughout the day and get you a post-coital snack. So if you've been, been in the shower and you felt something out of the ordinary, then you need to let your provider know Okay, that helps guide our decisions. Let us know what's going on with your body. All right, medical intern, are there any emailed cases?
3: Yes, this one says, hi, Dr. Plenty. I'm 51 years old and recently found out I was pregnant. I know I'm in disbelief as well. Based on my last menstrual period, I'm likely about six weeks. For the last year, I have been taking hormone replacement therapy. Now that I'm pregnant, do I need to continue my hormone replacement? If not, have I caused any harm by taking them prior to finding out that I was pregnant? Congratulations, because, you know, the
2: age does not tell us anything. Okay, your health, how healthy you are, that is more important. The age tells us you do have a a slightly higher risk of having uh, a smaller baby, you have a slightly higher risk of gestational diabetes and a slightly higher risk of having getting preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure and vascular damage, which we look for as protein in your urine. I've talked about that on the YouTube channel. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it does put you at higher risk for that. So you do need to be monitored a little bit closely. But in terms of your hormone replacement therapy, do you need it? No, you don't need it anymore the placenta, the yolk sac will make progesterone, okay? And by 12 weeks, you should have a placenta there that's also gonna take over making hormones for the pregnancy. I don't want you to give yourself hormone replacement therapy because I don't want any of your pregnancy hormones to have like a negative feedback because you're giving yourself exogenous hormones. I mean, you're taking pills to get the hormone level up and I don't want that to tell your body, hey, I already have enough, don't make any more. So I don't want that to be the case. Now, and the hormones that we give you for hormone replacement are a little bit different than the pregnancy hormones that are gonna take over. But needless to say, you don't need any extra hormones now that you're pregnant. Have you caused any harm um, to the pregnancy? No, if the pregnancy is still there, you have not caused any harm. Uh, Hormone replacement therapy won't necessarily cause you have a miscarriage, but it can dysregulate your hormones going forward, which is why you don't need to continue it. So you haven't done anything wrong. I think that you can continue your hormone replace I mean you can discontinue your hormone replacement therapy and let the regular pregnancy hormones take over. Now the other question is what do you do afterwards, right? When you're breastfeeding. So when you're breastfeeding, you're not going to take hormone replacement therapy either. You're going to just breastfeed, okay? Oxytocin is going to be high and the suckling effect that you get from the baby will help continue your milk letdown. Now, when you are done with the postpartum period, then you can get back on your hormone replacement therapy. So once you are done with breastfeeding, then you can get back on your hormone replacement therapy just fine if you still have symptoms. But you shouldn't have any uh, additional symptoms other than normal pregnancy symptoms right now to even need hormone replacement. And like I said earlier, some of the symptoms you would experience, you know, fatigue, um, you may be uh, tired all the time, You may have decreased libido. I mean, all of these things you can also have with just the pregnancy. But rest assured, if you have a normal ultrasound, meaning you have a baby with a heartbeat, when you go in for your prenatal visit, you don't need to do anything else except for let the body uh, take over in terms of hormone production, okay? The body, meaning the yolk sac, as well as the placenta. So in this part of the show, we usually go to cases, But for this episode, we had a lot of relevant questions um, to this topic that I think we should go straight to those questions. So as our expert guest, I would like you to weigh in on these questions as well.
3: The first question says, I just found out that my 15 year old daughter is pregnant a few weeks ago. I took her for her first appointment, but the physician's office would not allow me to come back initially. I thought I had to give permission for her to be treated. My daughter asked if she could go to the next appointment alone. I don't want her to go alone, but I also don't want to push her away. Is it common for teens to go to prenatal visits by themselves?
5: Yes, unfortunately. Um, It is something that I am fighting. I'm actually um, just a few months away from completing my uh, doctorate degree because this is one of the issues that I, I chose to tackle they receive inadequate prenatal care um, and a lot of them won't continue with prenatal care because they don't know the proper questions to ask their visits visits are usually short um, they'll put the doctor on the stomach they hear the heartbeat and then they ask the teen mom who's maybe 13 14 years old do you have any questions and of course they're intimidated by the process and they say no and so they walk out of there and they don't know what to ask they don't they don't they just don't know they don't know And doctors um, often don't feel like they have to you know, start offering <laughs> information to these young moms. They treat them like everybody else. It's like they're pregnant. If they didn't have any questions. I let them go, and that's unfortunate. So you'll see a lot of kids, not young moms, not going back. So they don't do the every month until they're seven months pregnant, and then the the two weeks. You know, every the eight month, and then every week, they don't usually do that. They'll go the first visit. Um, unless they want an ultrasound, they'll they'll constantly go back if they want ultrasounds, because that's like, I want a picture of the baby to post on Instagram. Right. So that's something they would do. Other than that, they're not going. But it is typical. Unfortunately, they have that right. It's that reproductive health rights where they are able to say that they don't want anybody in their doctor's visits with them and you know their parents or whatever. And so that's their right to do I think it should be changed. I don't think that should be. If you're a minor, you should have a support person with you. However, um, it is their right to to say no, and they don't have to have, you know, people in there with them, not even their mom.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It is very common. I see a lot of teen moms. They often come alone or they come with their boyfriends. A lot of people do that. Um, and they don't come with their moms. Every now and then I'll have a teen mom that come with their mom, um or their mom is concerned. But uh, let me let me make sure this mom understands that once somebody gets pregnant, they are now emancipated. Okay? That is where the the that, that is where the the law sort of protects this child now becoming a woman. So, we have to know that this mom, although she's 15, is going to be making decisions for her baby, okay? So if she's gonna be making decisions for her baby, now she can make decisions for herself because it doesn't skip over the mom and ask the grandma to make decisions for the baby. It's the mom. And so we can't give moms the right to say you're mature enough to make decisions for your baby, but you can't be mature enough to make decisions for themselves. Although maybe they're not, okay? So what I usually do is I treat everybody the same. So I don't care if you're 15 or you're 35, if you come with somebody, I'm going to ask that person to step out, okay? Because I want to make sure that one, especially with my teens, it did you have consensual sex? Okay. Because unfortunately, I see that a lot, you know, um, where this person has been, uh, you know, raped, um, oftentimes by a member of their own family, and then we have to report those uh, incidents to social services. So we have to be able to speak honestly and openly with each patient, okay? And then we wanna make sure we understand what that child or what that woman, because it doesn't matter how old you are, what you want discussed in front of other people, okay? So everybody has that right. And so mom, don't get offended if she wants to talk privately with the doctor before you come in. Now, Miss Maddox, you said a lot because I've seen it. I've seen people come in and I will go over a gamut of information. And as a consulting provider, I don't do a whole bunch of total care on people that are teens. I see them because teenagers are still considered to be high, in the high risk category. But you're right. I mean, they'll come in with, as soon as I start going through a laundry list of this is what's supposed to happen at each visit. All of a sudden they have all these questions, right? They want to talk and it's like, nobody said anything. And I'm like, did your OBGYN not go over any of this information? So, well, no, you know, my OB was rushing or they had to go out for a delivery. And it's not just the teen moms that say that. It's a, it's a 30, 35, 40 year olds that say the same thing, because unfortunately in healthcare, we're in a society of volume, right? Everything's about volume. And every visit is supposed to be 15 minutes. And, um, you know, that was one reason that I chose to specialize because you're not going to rush me. (laughs) I don't want to be rushed. You know, I want to take my time. And as a high risk specialist, I can take more time um, with patients than our general OBGYNs can. But I always tell people, and if, You're listening and you're pregnant, whether you're a teen pregnant mom or whether you are a 45 year old, you know, bring your notebook with you. You have questions, write them down. It's our job. Even if you're going to your general OBGYN and they look like they're rushed, you can't leave that room with questions. Okay, so make sure. And you say, hey, I have questions. Pull out your phone. You wrote your questions in your phone. And go through each one of those questions. Um, I'm pretty sure some providers don't like me because I know that I will give people a checklist of this is what's supposed to happen at each one of your visits. And it is on my website, like the the whole preconception checklist. And the, this should happen at these gestational ages um, checklist. And I've heard from providers that say, well, you gave you gave my patient a checklist. And now they're asking me why I didn't do a Tdap." I said, well, did you do it? <laughs> did you do it? Okay. Cause that's what's happened in 28 weeks. But, um, but you're right. We need to slow down. And I'm glad that you are there with these girls, helping them advocate and making sure providers are held accountable, right? Held accountable. Cause you're right. When people see people that they may think, Oh, this person doesn't have the resources you know, I may not get sued for this one. You know, they tend to uh, let up and they can speed through. But we do need to hold um, hold our doctors and our nurse practitioners and our providers accountable um, no matter who it is. OK. And as providers, we need to hold each other accountable because I will definitely say, did you talk to your OBGYN about that? Did you ask your OBGYN? Let me call them now. <laughs> call them in the middle. of. It. Hey, you sent this patient over. She has x, y and z questions. did you do that? um so we need to hold our, our each other as professionals as healthcare professionals um accountable as well but uh but yeah mom it's common it's common just uh I would encourage all moms if you are a mom of a teen that is now pregnant, you know if you're not going to these visits, still keep that open line of communication. I just remember my sister. When she was pregnant, my mom was just angry initially. She was so angry with her. I mean, to the point where I was like, you know, at that time, my sister was 16. I was 17. We're only 18 months apart. And I literally told my mom, can you just get over it? Like, why are you so angry? Like, this baby is coming. Stop being so angry. But I do understand that as a parent, you may be disappointed, but you have got to now help your child through The most difficult time of their lives and realize that, yeah, they didn't plan to get pregnant, but guess what? This baby is coming, whether or not you like it or not. So I would encourage this mom just to, if you can't be there, if your daughter doesn't want you in the appointments, you know, maybe there's something that she doesn't want to talk in front of you about, you know, so try to keep that open line of communication with your daughter and be supportive, and less judgmental in questioning. So according to the Lupus Foundation of America, lupus affects 1.5 million Americans and 5 million people worldwide in some form or fashion. And I say some form or fashion because there are different types of lupus. So there's lupus nephritis that predominantly affects the kidneys and not really any other Part of um, of the body, so you have different types of lupus, um, depending on what's predominantly affected. Or you can have systemic lupus and lupus nephritis because now you've had you have advancement of kidney disease. Okay, ninety percent of those with lupus are women, and if you think about it, you don't really know too many men that have lupus, and the onset is usually during. Childbearing years, but some are diagnosed as early as 15 years old and as late as 45 years old. So, for me as a high risk specialist, those are all childbearing years because I treat all of those, either teen pregnancies or those women that are over age 35, like I am. And lupus is also two to three times more prevalent amongst people of of color, which is the population who has the highest risk of complications and dying in pregnancy. So. Lupus patients have to be extra careful in making sure they are healthy prior to pregnancy to avoid complications during a pregnancy. And everyone with lupus who gets pregnant should be followed by somebody like me, who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist or uh, same thing as a high risk OBGYN through their entire pregnancy. Because like I say, lupus can affect multiple symptoms and you want to make sure that everything is being checked. And so you have your OB, you also want to have your MFM and you also want to have your rheumatologist as well. Now, the good thing about lupus and most autoimmune disorders is that during pregnancy, you are less likely to flare, but you do have a high risk of flaring during the postpartum period. So I always make sure my patients are scheduled to have a postpartum appointment with their rheumatologist two weeks after delivery. Even if they're like, I'm fine, I feel good. Okay, well, go to your rheumatologist, girl, and make sure that your numbers are good. Because what we don't want to do is be complacent. And then all of a sudden you're in a really extreme flare. Now I said that people are more likely to flare after pregnancy. Okay. It doesn't mean that you can't have a flare during the pregnancy. Okay. Patients with lupus should be treated during the pregnancy with at least immunomodulators. So when I say immunomodulators, I mean medicines that help boost your immune system in some ways and suppress it in others, right? Because lupus is your body attacking its own cells. So we want to make sure that those antibodies are suppressed that are attacking your healthy organs and tissue. And I've also had a few dads email me about their spouses moods during pregnancy. So I felt like I should break this down today. So let's talk about it. Let's admit it. Women who are pregnant do have changes in their moods in pregnancy. When you're going through pregnancy, you don't think that you're moody, but you are. You think you're being nice, your usual self. However, it's your mate that feels it. If you're listening to this right now and you've already delivered, just turn to your mate and ask, was I moody during the pregnancy? You'll probably see one of two reactions. Either he'll just smile and stay quiet or he'll give you a firm yes. So it's okay. I was moody too, even though I didn't think I was. Once my pregnancy was over, my husband was like, oh, I'm glad that's over. And I was like, well, what you mean? I was an angel. And he just smiled and said, okay, babe. Which is, I guess, equivalent to his, you know, silence. Uh, just smile and stay quiet, like reaction number one. But, you know, why is it that we're so moody? What makes us so moody? Well, moodiness in pregnancy is caused by several factors. One, you have hormonal changes. So remember, we have a ton of circulating progesterone and estrogen in pregnancy. Estrogen levels rise rapidly and they increase um, to over 100 times the normal pregnant state. Now these rapidly increasing and shifting hormones sometimes means your body doesn't know how to handle it. And this causes you to be emotional, hot, tired, irritable. And then you have progesterone that's also increasing. And then these increases slow down the motility through the GI tract, which means that your stomach isn't emptying as it usually does, which leads you to constipation. It can also lead you to nausea and vomiting. So of course, if you're not having regular bowel movements, if you're feeling a whole bunch of abdominal pain because you're constipated, if you are hot and irritable and emotional because of these changes, of course, you're going to be a little bit, you know, grumpier and not at your hundred percent best because you're constipated and you're vomiting. Then you have physical discomforts of pregnancy. So you're carrying more weight, literally. So the baby is growing more and more and more. And it's not like, oh, you're just carrying up to seven and a half pounds what the baby weighs. No, you got to factor in the, the weight of the blood volume doubling, factor in the weight of the muscles of the uterus, factor in the weight of the amniotic fluid that's around the baby. So literally you are carrying more weight. And it's also uncomfortable to have Whole bunch of pelvic pain, and more and more as your pregnancy progresses. Then you have nausea and vomiting, and sometimes other complications like preterm contractions and bleeding. Now, how can anyone be perky and happy when they are miserable? So, of course, you're going to be a little bit, you know, more miserable, you know what I mean? A little bit moodier. And then you have all of the other external factors that uh, that come into play, right? You have the things that you have to juggle while still being pregnant. So imagine if you have a toddler that you're juggling. Like if I had Harrison and I was pregnant right now, running around after him, I'm already frustrated running behind a toddler. And then I'm dealing with constipation, nausea, vomiting, feeling a whole bunch of, uh, you know, hot all the time and feeling sleep deprived. You add that on top. Then you have your spouse expecting you to do the normal things that you did before you were pregnant, right? They're wondering, hey, when are we going to eat? When are going to have a meal? Are you going to still cook? Hey, when are you going to clean up? Are you going to um, do the laundry? They're expecting you to operate and perform like you used to do. And then they're like, okay, we haven't had intercourse in a while. So when are we going to do that? So, of course, you are going to be a little bit moody. Okay. And you have uh, a lot of reasons to feel that way. How did you feel when all that was going on? Like at the time of the C-section, whenever people were, I was like, obviously unconscious and people were, a lot of people probably were in there and, you know, rushed in there because of everything going on. How did you feel when that was going on? I was just
6: ready for them to get done with the procedure. Um, When you got ill um, and and fainted, uh, you hadn't even been cut yet. And so, it was the anesthesiologist who was trying to get you prepped for your your surgery. And um, with those complications, things just went really quickly uh, just because they wanted to make sure they got baby out and, and got you stable and all that stuff like that. So I was just anxious for them to get done and very transparently for him to get out of the way because I felt like he was just like slowing up progress. And uh, the OB couldn't come in and do what she needed to do because she was kind of waiting on him. And so... Just you know, lots of anxiety in the sense that I wanted to get past the C section and get you know to the place where both of you all were recovering and we had baby uh, happy and healthy, um, you know, uh, out of your belly. But it was just you know, it took much longer in my you know from my perspective than than I really wanted it to.
2: So, um, what's the craziest thing I did during the pregnancy that you recall?
6: Oh, I. <laughs> You did nothing that I would call crazy during the present pregnancy. Um, (laughs) um, There were challenging moments. And I think, you know, the fact that you worked the entire pregnancy and would be like, you know, passed out at work on the floor. um, Those were those were, you know, difficult moments in the sense that, you know, you had people that were around you who were trying to make sure you were okay as you all were trying to take care of other patients. And so, um, you know, those are always fun.
2: Fun, huh? Yeah. So um, what our listeners don't know, um, shout out to my team at Community Health Network in Indianapolis, Indiana. They took good care of me during that pregnancy. They were sort of annoying me because they were like, sit down. You can't do this. Sit down. Right. And my office manager, Sierra Hermish, who's now with IU, I believe she's not with community anymore, but I mean, she was like family. I mean, when I got sick and in the hospital, like she came over there and sat down in a chair for, you know, every day when I was in the hospital, she was there. People were like, she is, she is like, acting like she is family. She's propped up. and like, she is family. And she would text my husband whenever something was going on, you know, like, I think you need to come up here and check on her. I think something's going on. So they definitely kept you in the loop. Uh, the entire pregnancy, they uh, they definitely kept you and Kim, Kim Harris, who was my OBGYN at that time, uh, kept both of you guys in the loop. So I had like a million eyes on me telling me what I could and could not do uh, during the whole pregnancy, which was to me really crazy. Let's go to some questions from or some
3: cases first. And then some questions from my listener. Our first patient is a 24 year old who is three weeks postpartum with her first child. She has been attempting to breastfeed, but is only making about two ounces of breast milk when she pumps. She doesn't allow the baby to latch because she states that it is too painful. She's seen a lactation consultant, but that has not helped her with the breastfeeding techniques. She now feels miserable and would like to formula feed only. What advice would you give her about formula versus breastfeeding?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times this has played out in my practice. I mean, even as um, as recently as a couple of weeks ago. Moms oftentimes will have this ideal in their head of how they would love to feed their babies. And it is a very important decision how you choose to feed your baby. But I think one of the things I've tried to encourage my moms um, about is to um, be willing to change depending on what because this baby you're caring for is a completely different baby as uh, a completely different human being and there's no way of knowing exactly how things are going to go the stress and anxiety a mom feels where they feel they're not breastfeeding and there's a and they heap a lot of mom guilt and shame and anxiety and worry and depression come over that issue that state oftentimes affect the baby even more negatively than some of the marginal benefits of breastfeeding so yes there are benefits to breastfeeding but if it's costing so much anxiety and angst and pain you're better off just really settling it goes back to what we said i had reserved the right to change my mind right and if things are not working out i would encourage her to just formula feed her baby and embrace that and If the act of pumping itself is not painful, to just continue to pump, you know, what she can, if she chooses to continue and still give the baby that amount of breast milk, it is still does have some value and she can still feel like she's contributing, you know, that way to her baby. Because the truth is, um, there are some women who would love to breastfeed, but can't, you know, for whatever reason, some medical condition, maybe a medication they're taking that is contraindicated. And so I think when we keep Guilt on moms for not breastfeeding it—it's not doesn't serve them or their babies well.
2: I like that, Doctor OBD, because the psychological stress—you don't, you know, people don't realize that their children feel what they are going through. So if you and people say when you have families that are going through divorce, right? You know, they're arguing and they think that they're arguing in private, but then the child can sense. When there is disdain in the marriage, and when there's something that's going on, when Mom and Dad are not getting along, because they're not seeing that loving example that they used to be accustomed to seeing, and we think that children are just oblivious to that, and you serve such a good point, you know, even babies can sense when moms have stress and anxiety. And I love the fact that you're like, you know, if this is causing her stress, like that's not good for the baby either. Just embrace the bottle feeding. And I know a lot of people that listen to podcasts, they know my story. I had a super high risk pregnancy. I had pulmonary emboli and DVTs and fibroids and a stat C-section and loss of consciousness. And they thought I had breast cancer. I mean, it was all this going on. And the pregnancy. So after my mass transfusion protocol, three and a half units of blood, it was difficult for me to have good milk production. And I pumped and breastfed and pumped and latched and, you know, all these things and, you know, nipple guard, no nipple guard, lactation specialist, no lactation specialist, because I'm the high risk pregnancy person. I am supposed to breastfeed, right? And so I tried that off and on for, you know, Six months straight, I was pumping. And it got to the point where I was basically formula feeding and supplementing with breast milk towards the end. And I was doing travel medicine as well. And one of my nurses came in my office after she just like heard me like just bawling because I wasn't making enough milk, you know, for my baby. And she said, Dr. Plenty, you can stop. And I just bald. I mean, cause it, it was almost like I needed someone to tell me it was okay. And then I could stop, you know, because, um, you know, I get emotional every time I talk about this breastfeeding and Johnny knows this. every time I talk about breastfeeding, I get so emotional because it's such a, you know, that's supposed to be our maternal instinct to be able to breastfeed for our babies. And you have people that are saying things that say, you know, breast is best. And, you know, I had all these people well, try one more time. You know, try. I'm like, I've been trying for six months every three hours. I've been, you know, trying and trying and trying to breastfeed. And I just wasn't making enough milk. And I finally just, you know, a mecca I had to stop. And I say that. And every time I talk about breastfeeding, um, I want to make sure that people that are like me, that are trying their hardest to do the right thing for their babies know that anytime you're making a decision that is in the best interest of your child that's the right decision to make and that there's no right or wrong answer you know formula is a good thing I always encourage my patients to breastfeed because there's so much you know bonding that can be done through breastfeeding there's antibodies you're giving your baby to help your baby's immune system. And of course, weight loss, you lose more weight when you breastfeed, but if you can't do it, that's okay. And if you just don't want to do it because there's something else going on in your life and you're working and you just don't have the time or it's mentally exhausting. That's okay too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it's actually a new study that, um, came out recently in the, uh, um, the uh, American Acad- Pediatrics Journal uh, that showed that moms were having a difficult time initiating breastfeeding very early on in the first you know week or so of life. If they supplemented with formula, a little bit of formula, they actually, at the end of the day, those kids were breastfeeding longer and were able to establish breastfeeding longer, right? And, and no, I mean, of course, because mom is less worried about her baby getting enough. So she's relaxed a little bit more, which helps the whole process, you know, and allows time to be able to make all that work, you know, if it's going to. So yeah, I totally agree that um, there's just way too much pressure put on moms like they don't have enough already as it is um, when it comes to breastfeeding.
2: So the case pearl for this case, I'm gonna use a line from Dr. Obidi and it says, you're the best mom for your baby. Whatever decision you choose to make is the best decision. Yeah. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and drop a comment on your preferred platform. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls@gmail.com at to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at Pregnancy Pearls. Also y'all make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty. And since this is our last podcast episode of the season, I will be dropping new YouTube videos so that you can see my smiling face as I transition to Georgia. In closing, remember you guys while we take the break, advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening and have an amazing month. I'll see you guys back in a few short weeks.
1: regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production.
6: Terms apply.